0: took a look around, I became fairly obsessed in my career as a journalist with helping people understand each other, and then got to this breaking point where I realized if all I do is continue to tell stories as a journalist, but I don't work on the fractured nature of not just the platforms in which we're telling stories, but the people who receive them, the community that is slowly sort of dissolving its ties across difference then I'm not gonna be helping people understand each other at all. And so I have to step back and find another way. I took a look around and I saw this blossoming space of bridge building organizations, civic minded organizations that recognize that this is a problem underneath all other problems. But Braver Angels by far was the one that I said, man, I didn't even think this was possible. And it already exists. At the heart of Braver Angels is this conviction that we don't need to wait. We can't wait for media or politicians to figure this out for us. We are the society. We are the people and we have the power to do this. And it starts small and scales up from there.
1: Hello, everyone, this is Ken Federnick, the host of Courageous Conversations about our schools. My very special guest today is Monica Guzman. She goes by money, but also calls herself a bridge builder when she's not busy constructing bridges, she works as a journalist. She lives in the Seattle area. She's a senior fellow at Braver Angels, a nonprofit organization working to depolarize America. She's the author of an excellent and recently new book called I Never Thought of It That Way. Moni, welcome to Courageous Conversations.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here.
1: You call yourself a bridge builder. Does that mean you're in the construction business?
0: <laughs> I, lo- I love seeing it from that physical sense. Uh, it does not. I don't, I'm not even sure I could hammer a nail uh, really <laughs> really appropriately or properly. I uh, don't, don't have the handyman skills at all. But it does mean that I've become obsessed in my life and in my career with helping people bridge divides, mostly out of a sense of how important it is for people to understand each other. And I've been a journalist my whole career, and that matters to me. I want to help people understand each other.
1: Great. Well, if you've listened to other podcasts, other episodes of this podcast, you know I talk with people about the culture wars in education and some of the highly controversial issues affecting our schools, like critical race theory and how students should learn about gender and sexual identity in schools. In the episode I recorded last week, we discussed the role schools should play in helping students learn about current events and controversial topics. As some of you might know, new laws in several states are restricting the way teachers are allowed to approach these things with their students. Teachers can be sued or fired if they don't adhere to these new rules, and it's driving many of them out of the classroom, out of education altogether. I suppose I, too, am trying to be a bridge builder rather than a cultural warrior. I simply don't find that throwing myself into the heated, noisy fray ultimately helps our schools, our teachers, or our students. I'm seeking to do in education what you, Monty, and your braver angel colleagues are trying to do in politics, getting people who seem to hold wildly different perspectives about public education to listen and have civil conversations with one another. My hope is that those who listen to this podcast might try doing the same thing rather than yelling at one another or simply avoiding one another and remaining in their ideological bubbles. So, Mani, I'm so honored to have you here as my guest, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about calming the culture wars in education. What do you think is driving these culture wars? Who benefits?
0: Hmm. Who benefits in the long run is a great question. I'm I'm not sure that anybody ultimately does. I I think that there's, there's a sense of wanting to fight for what we believe in. There's a sense of urgency that's pushing people to, as you said, jump into a fray. What we want is for that not to be a fray. We want it to be civil. We want it to be productive. And that takes creating a certain context and container For those conversations so that they can be those things so that people can share their honest ideas and still be heard. But as far as the culture wars, I mean, really what it is, is our society is changing really quickly. We're going through some extremely turbulent times when all these norms that we took for granted uh, around some really interesting topics that are very close to people's identities and, and hearts and expectations about how life should go, you know, everything from gender and race to sexuality, but, but all kinds of other things like how we manifest our values around freedom, you know, liberty and how we take care of each other, what accountability we have, all of that. So much that wasn't thrown into question is being thrown into question. And people have lots of interesting ideas about how, this is just the right thing to do. But some of those some of those methods do conflict and um education is one of the most interesting battlegrounds for these cultural wars, because what we're doing is trying to invest in the future and we're trying to educate our kids. But how do you write a textbook for something that is so fluid? How do you make those decisions now for something that's still settling? And that, I think, is part of it, too. We, we feel this urgency. We don't want to get it wrong. We want to get it right. But maybe a lot of people are kind of rushing too quickly to think we know what to do. I know exactly what to do. I don't need to have any more conversations, and I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's correct.
1: How do we get out of this bind? How do we get out of these wars? What what sorts of depolarizing strategies have you learned that could really be helpful for educators and parents and students and policymakers that uh, either are avoiding these conversations altogether or when they have them. They're not having productive conversations.
0: Yeah. I talk about the four steps to curiosity, The first two are about getting your curiosity engine going. And curiosity is this incredible superpower we all are equipped to use and to aim at the things we don't understand. And so steps one and two are gather knowledge, that's step one, gather knowledge that might be different or unfamiliar. And step two is look for the gaps between what you know and what you want to know. Okay, cool, right? You look for a gap, you go and get curious, you get more knowledge, you find another gap and you go on and on. But steps three and four are really important. Um, step three is embrace complexity. Make sure that when you hit something that seems really tough, you don't fall victim to confusion. Confusion is sort of complexity reframed as something that we just can't tolerate, that, that hurts. <laughs> we don't like to be that confused, right? But you reframe confusion as complexity and all you have to do is ask your questions. Uh, step four um, in, in being curious is to reject the easy answers. And this one's really important because the arch-villain to curiosity is certainty. When you think you know, you're, you're not going to think to ask. And a lot of us have gotten to these places where we're quite sure that we have all the information we need, that we have the answers, and that other people with different ideas are just in our way and it leads us to some bad habits like affixing labels to certain views and using those to dismiss what could be really interesting angles on the entire issue or to you know use it as an excuse to not listen to somebody with a different perspective who may add a layer of complexity that could open up new possibilities so it makes us less creative to be less curious and this is this is where i think the promise really is
1: the first podcast episode i had in this series on courageous conversations about our schools was on uh, um, indoctrination and the allegation among some uh that uh teachers in many of our schools are indoctrinating their students into uh is some claim left wing ideology but when i put some questions out there i think i was doing what you were recommending is turning the question of indoctrination into a more complex, interesting uh, proposition, like is it necessarily indoctrination if we urge our kids to support the idea of uh, social justice and uh, people at different points of view? And then I raised the question, is it indoctrination when we have our kids recite the Pledge of Allegiance? Mm. Uh, And it that seemed to fit everyone's definition, but people were a little reluctant to want to call it indoctrination, but, but they paused and, and said, I, I've got to think about it. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was sort of a way of turning down the volume by uh, turning what seemed like a simple question, either you're indoctrinated or not, into a more complex one.
0: Yeah, I, I like the exercise of slowing down at those types mm-hmm. of terms. Indoctrination doesn't sound like a good thing. And people know that wherever that label is applied is being judged as, as negative. So there's, there's an emotional reaction at the basis of any logical and reasonable argument about that. And, um, you know, I would get curious if someone, if someone thinks, you know, they're indoctrinating my kids. I would want to, I would want to ask what does indoctrination mean to you? What are you afraid is happening? Um, you know, paint the picture, paint the picture for me, uh, and then, you know, try to concede where those concerns where I can I can relate as a mother. I I get it. I I wouldn't want that either. Okay, cool. Um, you know, now let's talk about what what seems to be the boundary for you between an idea that is okay to teach and an idea that if you teach it and if you teach it in a certain way, you're not educating, you're indoctrinating. What is that difference for you? Because education seems fine, indoctrination does not. And then you start making these sort of this little map in a way of you know, we we give something different labels when we begin to judge it, or we begin to think that it's undermining some larger value, and that becomes really really interesting to do as a group.
1: You talk a lot in your book. Uh, I never thought of it that way about the importance of listening, and I think listening is so tightly connected to the idea of curiosity because if you're truly curious, it means you have to be open to to listening. I I did something last week with a conservative. A state senator from Kentucky who recently sponsored a bill that other people on the call I don't think necessarily agreed with, and it had to do with what's acceptable to teach in the classroom. But what I did was I, after he spoke, I asked another person on the call to summarize as succinctly as possible what that person said. And uh, this uh, progressive social studies teacher from Austin really nailed it. And the senator said, you got that exactly right. Uh, he was. He, I could tell he had a smile on his face, like you really listened to what I said and you got it right. And then I asked the senator, "Could you summarize what you heard this teacher say?" And and he did. And she said, "And you you got it really quite accurately. You actually added something that I appreciated to what I said." And so it just changed the relationship of these four people that didn't know each other. And they really started listening to each other, and uh, we managed, at least for an hour, to calm the calm the culture wars really by by encouraging people to listen to one another.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Amanda Ripley, who who you mentioned, wrote the book High Conflict, but she talks about that as looping, where you summarize what the person said mm-hmm. and then check with them if you got it right. It's a wonderful gesture in a conversation because it demonstrates that you care about getting someone right. A lot of times in conversations, that's not what we care about. We're not really listening, we're just trying to convince or we're trying to win. So when you take the time to say, did I get this right? Let me make sure, let me repeat back to you what you've just said. Uh, I, I talk about it in the book as the analogy being a base camp up a really tall mountain. You need to acclimate sometimes. You you know, you know build base camps so you can stay the night and you have a moment to just check in and be like, we cool, we cool. You, you're you hearing me? I'm hearing you. Okay, cool. Then you can climb higher. And that's what happens when we take the time to check in with each other. So when somebody goes, yeah, you got me just right. I mean, that person is now understood That that the gift of being understood is a pretty enormous one. And um, and then people feel like they can open up with less risk.
1: Yeah, you uh, you're very humble in your book, and you talk about the the mistakes you make, and, and and oftentimes, and I I could relate to this that when you're listening to someone else, you're looking for a gap, a, a contradiction, uh, some place where you can jump in and say, "See, that's where you're wrong." Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than doing what you just described, just is truly trying to understand them, and and I think when we're talking with people that we don't agree with. people know that we're doing that. we're not really listening. We're we're looking for a, for our next move.
0: Exactly. And that's a very natural psychological reaction, by the way, to to being in the presence of ideas that we do not like. It's an intuitive thing. It's hard to even be conscious that we're doing it. But what ends up happening is we look for an escape. We look for one thing we can criticize that allows us to justify not listening to this person at all. And it's it's unfortunate because when we are confronted with an idea we do like, we we give it a very different approach. We're generous toward it. We consider it on its merits. We're not trying to find one reason to throw out the entire argument. So actually one of the tactics that, works surprisingly well for being so simple and it's really just a self-hack is that when you are aware that you're in the presence of an idea you don't like you can tell yourself you know let me not ask must I believe this you know and sort of be petulant in my head and look for that way to sabotage let me instead ask can I believe this can I believe this what am I missing you know where does this where does this have merits what's the strong argument and just asking yourself internally those questions will put you in a more open frame of mind.
1: Money, of your braver angels colleagues are doing something interesting at the uh, at an event that I've invited them to in the county where I live in El Dorado County, uh, where we're trying to bridge our divide. There will be educators there, but also people from virtually every other sector of the county, and they're doing something where people uh, declare that they support one solution to a problem and two other people are on another side of the issue and think something else would be a better solution but what your colleagues are going to do after they say why they like their ideas to is to come up with two or three reasons why the idea might actually not work before they hear from the other side Mm. and uh and they're going to do that in sort of a fishbowl uh structure so people observing mm-hmm. and not speaking on the outside can observe what happens. But I think the the cool thing about this activity is that it promotes this idea of being humble, that uh it's not just about my getting my idea adopted. It's about getting the solution, getting this the problem fixed. And I I think the idea is that we want to create cultures and organizations and families and relationships where we're the first to say, my idea may not be perfect. In fact, this could happen or this could happen. I still think it's a good idea, but it signals to the other person that it's really not about you. It's about mm-hmm. trying to get the idea right. I, I, I wonder if you have a yeah. some thoughts about that.
0: Oh, I've I've witnessed the Brave Angels fishbowl exercise, and its impact is tremendous. Mm-hmm. It, um, I think the 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 signature place where it. Plays out is in a workshop called the Red Blue Workshop, mm. which is famous in, in uh, Braver Angels' world and has been studied by Brown University and and shown to have depolarizing effects even weeks after the workshop, which is incredible. But but yeah, what what the questions are there is we gather folks on the red conservative side and the blue liberal side, and this exercise the, you know, maybe the they take turns. So the blue folks have a chance to listen to the red folks be humble about their own side. So first they have a discussion around the question, you know, what does, where where do I think my side has really good ideas for the country? And then they also have to answer the question, what are the shortcomings? Where does my side maybe not really show up in the best ways? And so witnessing the other party in a state of humility has an incredible effect. It's a very humanizing effect. It makes somebody realize that they too can be humble. And then you step away from the default of my job here is to win or to convince, or that's the only way to show up strong. I think it's actually the opposite, that Mm. that you you show up much more strong when you are humble because you have the right priority.
1: I've been thinking about ways to calm the culture wars, but I think uh, it occurs to me that we might actually... Um, think about the role that parents and teachers could play in being bridge builders. Uh, mm. So it's not just about the culture wars and critical race theory and indoctrination, these things playing out that's uh, in the news media, but everyday kind of interactions and the kinds of things that we teach children to be better at. Uh, do you think they're, uh, can you imagine? the idea of teachers promoting and uh, these kinds of things you're talking about with your students and parents too, trying to help their kids become and, and to help themselves become better bridge builders.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think the key is about providing a model. Right now, unfortunately, in the spaces that we all share in our cultural touch points, there are no models for how to have these conversations well there's almost no public demonstration. In fact, what we see is the opposite on TV news and whatnot. You know, it's about the conflict and that's really what we're going for. And so we just don't even know what it looks like. And it's very difficult then for people to try to do it themselves, but it only feels difficult. It's actually not that difficult to do, you know? And so what I I think, for example, teachers in a classroom can, I think, go a long way to helping children navigate a world like this by playing the role of, the moderator that is interested in making sure that the views of the classroom are expressed and can be in communion and conversation with each other, where they add friction to each other. And this makes more sense maybe with older kids, but it works with younger kids too. So it's it's about the teacher looking around the classroom, noticing that we're having a conversation and this kid who normally would speak up seems really quiet and crossing his arms and saying, Hey, is there something you're concerned about with this conversation? Is there something not being said? We'd really love for you to, to speak up. Um, and also the teacher can demonstrate what is okay by telling stories about their own intellectual humility. You know, I just want to tell you all before we jump into this debate about this issue that we read about in history class, right? That just the other day, I realized that I have been assuming something about our own history or about what it tells us about how we ought to live today. And this is how it happened. And this was my aha moment. And so I told myself to look at it this different way. And if students hear that teachers, you know, are excited about going through that journey, then they themselves might be excited about going through that journey. In other words, they may not be so afraid to be wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, Moni, I want to thank you so much for being part of Courageous conversations about our schools i think you've given me and our listeners a lot to think about and 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 just as importantly a reason to have some hope that not only the culture wars in education can be calmed but um, we can begin to think about modeling a different way of communicating and interacting with our with our colleagues with our students with our parents with our children so i i want to Thank you so much for being part of this podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I really do believe most educators, parents, and students really do want to escape the culture wars. And I think that what you said today, and what you write about may be the best way out of these winless wars. For those listening, you will find all of our podcast episodes at schoolconversations.org and on your favorite podcasting platforms. So long, everyone.